I want to start talking about this week's uh, Torah portion and share with you some beautiful ideas about life and about interpersonal relationships. Welcome, everyone. Glad to have you all here. Really exciting. So here's the big question for this week, and it should leave with us some very powerful uh, teachings and ideas, something that is really profound and uh, something that you could take with you for life. Obviously, that's always what I try to do, is to bring things that can really make the Torah alive and relatable as it really is, just from an outside perspective. When we look at it in a small way, we say, ah, you know, this is weird. Why is it saying it like this? When you look at things from a deeper level, you start seeing the depth and the power of what's written in the Torah and what's behind it. So, One of the ideas that we learn is that after the Jewish people leave Egypt, they got the Torah, they got the Ten Commandments and the Torah. Torah in Hebrew is the word for hora'ah, which means direction. The direction, uh, the teaching of living, it it directs me in how to live. And there was a great revelation, we all know, right? The Torah is given to us, and the Ten Commandments, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am Hashem your God, who took you out of Egypt. And all these amazing things that we got told. And then comes the next Torah portion, which is this week. Parshat Mishpatim. And these, when you look at them, it's very strange. See the laws of Mishpatim, of this week's Torah portion. You'd say to yourself, wait a second, why is it starting to talk about interpersonal relationships? I'm going to go into a bit of them. But wouldn't you have thought that, you know, they just had a massive revelation. They finally got to know Hashem. They got the revelation of who Hashem is. So wouldn't you expect that with that major revelation, they should get taught more? You know, like maybe they should be taught the tense firot or Kabbalah and how God works, what the mystical world looks like. You know, I would expect all that stuff, but that's not what happens. What we're taught straight after the Jewish people came Jewish people is interpersonal relationships, how to treat a slave. Yes, there is a slave in Judaism, and when somebody doesn't know what that means, you're asking, okay, what does that mean? But hold it a second. The rabbis teach us, kana evet, kana adon If somebody has a slave, he actually has a master. Do you know in Judaism when there was a slave? When did a Jew have a slave? Do you know? This seems strange and old-fashioned, but of course today we don't do that anymore. But from a Torah perspective, what happens when there's a a thief? When a thief comes along and is caught stealing from you, what do we do to the thief? Straight away we put him in prison, we convict him, three years, four years, whatever it is. Well, actually in prison, first of all, those four years is is time wasted. Second of all, when somebody is in prison, what do they learn? A lot of times they learn how to be even more criminal-like. They learn more crime by being around people that are like that. It doesn't necessarily make you a better person. In Judaism, there's actually no such thing as a prison. There is an indirect way of putting someone in prison until we organize things. But really, in Jewish court, there is no prison. So what is a prison? I'll tell you the greatest prison of all. First of all, we make the person pay double because measure for measure, you try to take from the person a certain amount of money. 
So now we'll make you pay double because, you know, let's say somebody steals and he steals $100. According to Jewish law, he has to pay double. Why? Because 100 he took from that person and the other 100 he gained. There's $200 involved. One $100 was lost and another $100 was gained. Plus, the person that lost $100 because it was stolen went through a lot of heartache and pain. He worked hard for his money. Suddenly, someone stole it. So, in order for the whole system to work, we make the person that stole pay double. Immediately, he feels the repercussions of his actions. And if he is caught stealing, he pays double. But if, let's say, he can't pay the money. Let's say he steals $10,000, he doesn't have the other 10000 He doesn't have a way to pay it. According to Jewish teaching, he has to work for this person. Oved comes from the word to work. That's the language. He has to work for this person. But don't ever think that according to Jewish law, now that he has to work for this person, he's treated like dirt. He has to be treated with love and care. He gets, if there's... a a hundred pillows in his house and he has a bunch of guests. He gives all his guests his pillows. He has no more left, either him or his servant. According to Jewish teaching, he has to give his pillow to the servant. That's why the rabbis say you have a servant according to Jewish law. That servant is your master. Not you are the master over the servant. That servant is your master. So when you look and you delve in, and by the way, a servant, if he was your servant, there's a certain amount of time. Until up to six years. Every seventh year, he has to be free. Free. So every there's a cycle in Judaism. We have the Shemitah year, where the fields are left free. If, let's say, this goes every seven years. In Judaism, we calculate every seven years. There's like a Shabbat year, sabbatical year. If, let's say, he stole in the third year and was convicted in the fourth year to go pay the money, but he couldn't pay the money. So he has to now work for this person until the seventh year. Once the seventh year comes, he's free. It's not like he worked for him forever. So this just shows that when you see a story in the Torah, you might say, oh my goodness, old-fashioned, weird people. What is wrong with you? But when you look at it from a deeper sense, when you look at it from its real source, you see some beauty. You see a real powerful thing. By the way, the person that stole also gets to live with the person he stole from. Can you imagine what a teaching that is? You start seeing his family. You see his life. You see that how hard he works to earn his money. Eventually, the, th- the thief comes out after working for this person, comes out saying to himself, how dare I have stolen from this person? How bad was it that I stole from this? Look how hard he has to work to earn his money. So it also gave him a great teaching lesson. But anyway, so that's one thing. The next the Torah talks about is a girl, a convert. According to Judaism, you have to respect the convert. Why? You were also, Gerim, when you came out of Egypt, we were also converts. So Judaism has a commandment to respect the convert. An orphan. The, Talmud, the rabbis say that if an orphan or a widow is hurt, you, this is something which is very important for us to know. 
if there's somebody you know who doesn't have a parent, you have an obligation, a biblical obligation, to respect that child even more. There's a child in the classroom that needs to be favored. You can't say, oh, favoritism. That's a good thing to give favor to a child that has lost a parent. It's actually a requirement in Jewish law. Or a widow. A widow who lost her husband and there's, a, there's some land that she's dealing with or property. You have to make sure that the, the, she has exactly what she needs and everyone's giving her the money exactly on time because a widow also is somebody who had a very difficult challenge. And we as human beings have to have compassion. Why? Because we were also once slaves in Egypt. We also were once in pain. We know what misery is like. We know what pain is like. And because you were in pain, that's why, by the way, we're obsessed with Egypt. Why are we so obsessed with Egypt? We're obsessed with Egypt all the time. Kiddush, Shabbat, every prayer. We take out the wine, the mezuzah, you know, the thing on the door that we put? Mentions Egypt, the Shema, the holiest Jewish prayer, Egypt. We're so obsessed with Egypt. Why? Because when you, when you remember where you come from, you have a tremendous amount of compassion. Huge compassion. That's Egypt. When you have, you remember that you also were once, it's like the CEO who comes a successful owner of a major company. As soon as he becomes the owner of the big company, right, he starts forgetting all the people at the bottom. Excuse me, that's where you were once. The way he interviews, right? Anyone here been through a difficult interview by a big owner of a company? Absolutely rude, never gave you a response. Talking to you from another angle. Here, I'm from above and you are waved from below. So some, to a certain extent, every uh, interview needs to be somewhat um, formal. That's true. But not to a point where you're treated like dirt. And what happens is the person that's at the top now forgets what it was like when he was once at the bottom. He was once where you were. Every single person was once a baby, born just brand new. Every single person didn't know, like Neil Schwartz said a few, few weeks ago when he came on. Every single person, even the greatest mathematicians, never knew maths, the basics of maths when they were young. Every single person started with zero. But we forget that. So that's why, according to Judaism, never forget where you came from. Never forget that you were also once in rock bottom. You were at the worst spot ever. And look where you've become. So the same with a widow. That's why an orphan and a widow, if they cry, the rabbis say, that those tears are very powerful tears. And those tears never get forgotten. God remembers those tears forever. And they will come, that energy of somebody who's a widow or an orphan that was hurt by, by somebody, that energy comes back at you. It's a dangerous energy to play with. And uh, a person needs to give ultimate respect to a widow and an orphan. It's a requirement in this week's Torah portion. Cursing your father and mother using God's name. According to Jewish teaching, cursing a parent is... Deserving of the death penalty. Oh, that sounds strange. Death penalty? 
let me explain to you, death penalty was not something that was easy to enforce. It's another whole discussion how death penalty really works in Judaism. We believe in it. Only to teach me the severity of the wrong things that we do in this world. Only to teach me the severity of the sin. It was never there to enforce. It was almost impossible. You need the two witnesses. The witnesses needed to be checked out. It needed to be exactly the same time. We had to wait till the next day for our even uh, taking the whole system to court. It was the whole thing was a tremendous, harsh process. And if the, if the witnesses were caught lying in any way, they will get what they're trying to give to the other person. It was, it was very difficult to enforce. The only reason why death penalty was actually instituted, is, is put into Judaism, is to teach me the severity of the wrongdoing. When somebody kills, they know that I am worthy of a death penalty. Even though the, the, the rabbis say if a, if a court would give, when they have Jewish courts, would give a death penalty once in 70 years, just recently, this year alone, there's been quite a few death penalties in America. Once in 70 years, it's called the most bloody court ever. Meaning, once in 70 years, which was insane. Because Judaism never wanted to enforce a death penalty. There are criminals. Crime exists. There is evil. Now, in order to stop it, we have to know that there is an importance of emphasizing the severity of wrongdoing. If we all know that through murder, and I do one, I do another, God forbid, not me, somebody does one, two, three, four, mass murder, one ki serial killer, one after the other, if he knows in the back of his mind, that each time it's worthy of a, of a death penalty through human beings, that would surely, it wouldn't completely remove evil, but it would surely allow that person to consider once or twice more before he does his actions. And knowing that you're just going to sit in a prison is not necessarily going to have that much of an emphasis, not that much of a, of a, of a severity to the person. So, you know, it, hitting, you didn't know that according to Jewish teaching, I don't know if there's any nurses here, as a nurse, there's a question in Jewish law if you're allowed to take blood for your mother or father. Why? Because we, we have a law that you can't hurt your parents, you can't physically hurt them. There's a question in Jewish law this, to such an extent that what happens if you draw blood because you're a nurse? General decision is, if you can get somebody else to do it, you should. But if you, at the end of the day, you're doing it to help them, so it's not really the same. But even that is a consideration because we're so strict about how you treat your parents. There's another law that we learned this week called rebeat. Does anyone know what that means? Rebeat. It sounds like somewhere in Turkey. Rabat. Right? Rebeat means to take uh, to take uh, interest. Today, we when we go to the banks, we borrow a certain amount of money. We, we have a credit card. So the credit card takes interest. Whenever you borrow money from the bank, the credit card takes a certain amount of interest. The banks are allowed to do that, according to Jewish law, because it's a form of business for them. It's different. 
It is their form of business within themselves. That's their way of making money. They do it in a certain way called heter iska. Most banks, if it was a Jewish-owned bank, they will have to make sure through a rabbi that they're doing it in a way which is, allows them to do it. But the rebeat is actually a transgression in Jewish law. It's not very simple to take interest when you lend someone money. Here, I'll lend you $1,000, but every month you don't pay me back, I will take another $100 interest. The first month comes 1100 the next month, and it goes up, right? Every time, 10% interest. This is called, in Hebrew also, neshech, like biting. Neshech comes from the word bite. Rashi says, like the biting of a snake. That's how the snake would bite. How would the snake bite? It comes at the bottom of the person on his foot, right? Gets the foot. And then what happens? It, the person thinks, oh, it's not so bad. I felt like a tickle on my foot. And slowly but surely, the poison moves along his body until he gets to the brain. And Rashi says it's exactly how Rebit works financially. You borrow money. The person's poor, obviously, doesn't have the money to pay, whatever it is. And slowly, the interest adds up. At first, you think, okay, it's not that bad. All of that money adds up. Why do you think it's so easy to get money to loan for, for a home, to buy a home? Everyone eventually buys a home at some point. The banks are willing to do it. Are they stupid? The answer is no, they're not. They're making a ton of money. You are committed to them for at least 30, 40 years. That's a lot of money that they make monthly besides for the actual cost of loan that they took from you. So if somebody does take a loan privately from someone, First of all, it has to be documented according to Jewish law also. You always have to, whenever you take a loan, even if it's someone you trust, you document it. But also, it has to be done in a way of heter iska, a form of business, not a form of loan where it just, it has to be done in the right way. Another commandment, there's hundreds of commandments, this Torah portion is unbelievable. Beautiful ideas. Another commandment in this Torah is midvar shekel tilchak. Midvar shekel tilchak. From the word of a lie, keep very far away from. It's a strange statement. You should just say, don't lie. Yeah, just like, like it says, don't eat pig, according to Jewish law. Don't lie. No. Midvar shekel tilchak. Keep very far from a word of lie. Why? Why is lying so bad that the Torah says, Tilchak, run away. Run away from a lie. First of all, logically, even outside of the Torah, once someone lies and you're caught, that's it, you're done. Once someone knows you're lacking an element of truth, once, he's never going to trust you the same again. Done. Because whenever you say something, thinking it's the truth, he's going to think maybe he's lying, maybe she's lying. I don't know. That's why even from a logical perspective, when somebody doesn't say the truth, you might think, okay, whatever, they, don't, they won't find out. But if they do, it's done. But that's, that's on, a, on, a, on a logical level. On a spiritual level, it's much more than that. We say, The way that God is seen in this world is through truth. 
One of the ways of Hashem is truth. Amen. That's why when you see the Torah, when you open the Torah, the first three words, Bereshit, Bara, Elokim. In the beginning, God created. The last three letters of those words, Bereshit, the last letter is Taf. Bara, the last letter is Aleph. Elokim, the last letter is Mem. And when you go to the end of creation, at the sixth day when the creation was done, it says, Asher bara Elohim la'asot, which God created to do. And there again it says, bara is an Aleph at the end of it, Elohim is a Mem, and la'asot ends with Taf. So you see that throughout creation, hidden is truth. Meaning, in order to be in this world, when you want to understand truth, it's something which encompasses all of time. That's why also the word emet, aleph, mem, taf, is three letters. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Mem is the middle. Taf is the last. Because that's what truth is. It encompasses, it's something that encompasses all of time. What's truth? Truth is something that stands the test of time. If it's true today, it's true tomorrow. That's why Judaism understands that the physical world, just physical alone, isn't true. Never fulfills you. It's only when I use the physical for a spiritual purpose that it has an element of truth in it. But if I, if I just look at something physical, if it dies, it's not truth. The, the spiritual in the physical is truth. But if the physical just dies, it's not truth. Sometimes we pursue things thinking it's truth, it's worse than depression. When we spend a lifetime pursuing something, thinking that's where truth is at, when really that's not where truth is. So, Sheker, the Gemara says in Shabbat, the Talmud says in Shabbat, Sheker, a lie, is something that has no feet. Whilst truth has feet, the letters of Sheker have no, no feet. It says, Shikra Lakae. Lies don't stand. They don't stand on its own. Shin, kufresh. They don't stand on its own because they, 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 they have some element to it. The letters are next to each other with sheker, with a lie, but they don't stand. They fall. A lie never stands the test of time. A rabbi was once asked, listen, rabbi, I can't do all of Judaism. Is there one thing that you think I can do that would really strengthen my Judaism? He said, yes, there is truth. Stick to truth. And he saw that it really worked. He tried to steal. He said, what am I going to do if they catch me? I'm going to say it wasn't me. I have to say it was me. If my relationship's not working, what am I going to do? I'm going to say, no, it wasn't me. Or I'm, I, I was right when I was wrong. I'm going to admit I was wrong. And slowly, you'll be able to fix everything. Sarit, also, if you can tell Lita uh, oh. to do the same thing, there's two things I need from her also. Shira, you are on mute. Oh, there you go. Shira? Yes. Hey, hey, sorry. Oh, should I mute you? Got it. Okay. Is, if anyone has questions, please tell me. So, uh, um, there's much more to say. You know, sometimes truth isn't always something that we need to do. There's certain cases where we're not meant to actually stick to the truth. 
spoke about this uh, on our, one of our uh, talks that we had on Tuesday, our Steig session. The Gemara, the Talmud, and Ketuvot says there are times where you're not meant to say the truth. For instance, Ketzad Meragdim Lifnei Hakala. How do you dance in front of a bride? You go to a wedding. Nowadays, it's not so simple. But when you would, back in the day, go to the wedding, you would dance in front of the bride and groom. There's a mitzvah. You get special blessings when you dance in front of the bride and groom. Obviously, in the right way. But somebody who... Uh, makes the bride and groom happy, is doing a mitzvah. Rabbis say, this is an argument between Hillel and Shammai. But Shammai says, How do you, what do you say to them? What do you say to the, the groom? But Shammai says, Kala kamochi. You say, the bride is as beautiful as she is. Meaning, you don't, let, you don't say she's really beautiful, she's amazing, what a beautiful, an amazing choice you made. You just say, She's as beautiful as she is. Beit Hillel says, no, 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 that's not what you do. And we hold like Hillel. Hillel says, Kala na'a How beautiful is she? And how much chesed, how much kindness, how, much, how virtuous she appears to be as well. That's what Rashi says. Kutcher chesed, mashuch she has this string of kindness coming from her. She's so attractive. Wow, what a great choice. So Shammai goes to Hillel and says, excuse me, you're lying. What happens if she's, God forbid, she's, she's defo- there's a problem. There's missing an eye, missing a limb. Can you still say that you have to be truthful? Truth is one of the most powerful values in Judaism. How can you say that? Say she's as beautiful as she is. How can you say she's very beautiful? So Hillel answers, beautiful, amazing answer. He says, well, if somebody buys a car and comes up to you and says, do you like my car? I'm changing it a little bit. But the car is terrible. Not something you like. It's a painted bright yellow. You ever seen these bright yellow cars? You're wondering to yourself, what are they thinking? Bright yellow car. They come up to you and they say, do you like my car? What should you say? Hillel asks Shammai, what would you say? So Shammai says, I would say it's a nice car. Hillel was saying that when once someone already purchased something, there's nothing wrong to say that it's beautiful because it's true. In the eyes of the beholder, it is beautiful. So there's no lie there. For the person that has the car, it is beautiful. Otherwise, why would he have bought it? He bought a terrible car. He would have chosen a car that looks terrible. And that's very important in relationships too. You might say, you know, if your spouse comes to you and says, hey, what do you think of my new dress? And you think, oh, my, horrible. Should you say it's horrible? The answer is, you could say it's beautiful. Don't just say, oh, it's nice. No, but I have to be honest. I don't like it. I don't like it. You could say it's beautiful because she purchased it. 
She made the effort to buy it. It means to her, she's not crazy. If she would have bought it and didn't like it, she would not have bought it. She bought, she bought it because that's what she liked. And therefore, you have a requirement to say, how beautiful is this thing, even if you don't like it. Yes. In a relationship, I remember once a big rabbi telling a whole group of us, even if your wife buys something that you don't like, you should still say it's beautiful. And it was based on this Talmud. There are other times where you can lie, also for the sake of machloket, arguments. You do not have to say the truth about an argument. Hey, did your mom just say that? Right? Your spouse comes up to you, did your mom say that? You can clearly say straight up, no, she did not. Because you know that if you said yes, that's it. World War Three. It's better to say she did not say it, and that's it. Get out of, you can lie for the sake of shalom bayit. There's other cases also. The Gemara, the Talmud says a bunch of other cases uh, that you can actually not say the truth for the sake of... I'm just giving you, giving you an example where you can actually change the truth for the sake of truth. Just that you get the, an understanding. God forbid there was an accident, a car accident, and people got injured. A person that's injured lost his... In the car, he lost some of his loved ones. God forbid. Right? You should never know about it. Some of his loved ones are lost in the car. The last thing you want to say is, if he asks you, is everyone else okay? Is my child okay? Is this one okay? The last thing you want to say is, no, they're gone. Because a person who's in an accident as is, is in an injury. On top of the injury, a mental uh, a, a mental challenge can kill the person straight away so you have a mitzvah to keep this person alive by saying no they're okay they're fine they're fine we just need to take you to the hospital you see how lying sometimes in itself is the truth because truth is something that stands the test of time if it's not going to stand the test of time then it's not within the value of truth it's better to not have the lie of an argument than to, right? It's better to destroy an argument through lying because arguing in itself is a lie than saying a lie. It's better to say a lie than to go through the lie of arguing because arguing in itself, shalom in itself, is also a value. And to argue in itself is a lie. So you'd rather lie to... You understand what I'm saying? Very important idea. There's some other cases also in Judaism where we're taught. This is why studying Torah is so important. When you learn the laws of midvash what it means to not lie. I'll give you another few examples. It says masechet ushpiza. Three examples where you can lie. If somebody comes up to you and says, "Wow, wow, you know so much." You're such a genius. You seem to know everything. You're allowed to say at that point, I really don't know everything. I don't know what you're talking about. It's okay to change in order that somebody doesn't think of you as a higher, for the sake of your humility. Now, if that person's coming to you because he needs direction, 
For instance, I'm a rabbi, so he wants to know, do you know this stuff? Do you, do you know? I, I'm asking you because I want to know if you know. So then you could say, yes, I know. But otherwise, for the sakes of just being someone in front of people as popular, as someone who, which is actually really interesting how humility on social media doesn't exist for some reason. Not, not always, but a lot of times, one of the ways of making yourself popular or heavily liked on Facebook or whatever other social media is to talk about how you succeeded. So um, according to Jewish teaching, only if it's going to be used to help others is that something that you could use. I don't know, I'm a psychologist, so I would want to show off my success in psychology, or my expertise, my his- history in psychology, so that people will trust me. Of course, then in such a case, I should say the truth. But if for no reason, I'm just getting showered with, jo- with, with praise, that's not going to be for my benefit, and a person should also, even in such a case, that in itself is a lie, and should twist the truth for the sakes of not having pride because pride in itself is a lie. Make sense? Okay, let me give you another example. Puria and Ushpiza. Puria is private affairs between you and your spouse. Things that are private between you and your own. You know, uh, someone knocks on my door. I remember doing this as a kid. I'm sorry, my mom's not in. She's in the shower. Or... Something worse. She's in the bathroom. Right? I don't need to say that. I don't need to be so honest to explain exactly the details of my private affairs. Right? She's not available. That's okay. Honesty has its boundaries. So that's another case. And ushpiza is also very important. If somebody was kind to you, it does not mean that you need to publicize that to everybody. So who helped you? Did you get a loan? Yeah, I have a, fr- a friend who gives out, who's been giving me a loan. Who? I want to know who. I would want to go to him as well. Yeah, you should definitely go to him. Ask him. It's not fair. You're putting him in a situation. Ushpiza literally means somebody who hosts you. You travel to uh, um, Israel and there's a home that you know was really kind to you. They hosted you for three months. You come back to America, you tell all your friends, yeah, there's this house in Jerusalem. They host you for three months. They hosted me three months. I could even give you their number. You start giving out their number to everyone. It's not right. How do you know that's something they want to do? (laughs) All of a sudden, summer comes, right? When COVID ends, everyone flies to Israel. Everyone's going to say, hey, can we stay by you? Can we stay by you? It's not fair. You're going to overwhelm that person. So you, somebody who's kind to you, you can't give over that information unless they give you that permission. Because then it's going to be very hard for them to say no. Difficult confrontation. So that's about lying. There's so much more. I don't even know where to end. Vedal lo tehedal berivo. Chapter 23 of this week's Torah portion. It says, a poor person shouldn't be a victim. A poor person in court 
should never be treated with extra care. Oh, because they're poor. You know, in, in today's court system, if there's a big company against the individual, a lot of times the individual will win the case because the big company has the big money, right? Actually, sometimes it's the other way around, right? But sometimes we might say the individual's got, you know, he's, he's small, small business. He should win the case. According to Judaism, our rabbis, this, the Torah tells us in this week's Torah portion, the rich in court can't be favored and nor can the poor. You can't be extra kind to the poor in a, in a place of monetary conflict. He borrows money, he has to pay back. If he borrowed, he has to pay it back. You can't say, hey, excuse me, I, I, I don't owe the money. You borrowed the money. There's another law. So you might say, okay, that's not fair. Let me tell you something very interesting. David the king, it says in Samuel 2, David Came the king of all the Jewish people, and David would do mishpat udstaka. He would bring judgment, justice, and staka, righteousness. So you've got charity and just and justice. You've got charity and judgment. He would bring both of them together. What does that mean? The commentaries explain that when there was a court case and the poor person really lost the case, even though he has no money to pay the the case or whatever it is, the poor person really has to pay. He'll tell him, listen, this is the case. You owe the money. You have to pay. And the poor person with tears in his eyes would leave the courtroom knowing now that he has to pay his this tremendous bill, thousands of dollars, and he will be devastated. He would leave the court case. But as he left the room, from the other side, David David the king, a king. Can you imagine? He would run out the court, run out the courtroom and meet the poor person on the outside of the court, not in the courthouse, outside, far out. He would meet him and say, okay, I'm writing you a check. Here's the money that you owe. That's what it's called. David was a person that would bring justice and righteousness, justice and charity. You need law, but you also need justice. You can't ignore one over the other. And that's how David Amelech, that's how the Torah says. You can't favor the victim just because they're a victim. If that's the case, they have to pay. If the victim has to pay, they have to pay. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a tremendous amount of compassion for that poor person and have an extra amount of I would, what we would call justice and careness. So you have to have mishpat udstaka. That's the ultimate system. And that's what we see in this week's Torah portion. But never to say, oh, there's a poor person against the wealthy Let's favor the poor person first over the wealthy person. Telford, do you have a question? Does anyone have a question? <clears throat> okay, no question. Okay, there's many, many other que- 
cases that we learn in this week's Torah portion. Amazing stuff. Marriage. You want to know something about marriage? Here goes about marriage. It says in marriage, the man commits to three things in the relationship. Clothing. She'er is actually food. Ksut is clothing. And ona is the relationships. And it goes that way. The man, she commits herself to him. And in the ketuvah, they would write this document. You know the document? You noticed in a Jewish wedding, he gives her a ring. Because through that, he makes that commitment. She makes her commitment to him. And he makes the commitment in the document to her in three areas. Uh, Three areas. What is it? She'er ksut ve'ona. Share is food, clothing, and intimate relationships. These are three areas that a person needs to commit in a relationship. Now, you might say, okay, what's the big deal? Let me go through the depth and profound wisdom that's behind these three things. Because I think that without this idea, relationship is doomed. It's not going to survive. Food is important, of course. You have to commit to food, to giving the food to the home. A person can't say, oh, why do you need to spend that much on food? If that's the food she needs, that's the money that you need to be spending, Hashem will pay you that money back because that's him who's commanding you to do it. Clothing. Maimonides actually says it's not only clothing. It's also the home. Basic needs. Actually, whilst we're saying this also, Maimonides talks about during the three holidays that the Jewish people have, we have Sukkot, we have three main holidays, Passover and Shavuot. During those three holidays, we have a commandment of you should be extra happy on the holiday. And the Talmud says, how can a woman be happy with jewelry and fine clothing? Not just wine. And some good food, but a person is actually meant to spend some extra money on jewelry and some bigdaim, bibgadim, naim, vetachshitim. Nice clothing and jewelry. If you want to make a girl happy, it's jewelry and clothing. Even if she has a wardrobe full of shoes, it never hurts to have another pair. True? True? Sometimes you just got to go. You just got to go shopping, even if you have everything. And the guy might be like, I don't get it. Why, why is she going again? She has, every, she has already five winter clothes, 5,000. Why is she going again? But that's how it is, right? Because that's, that's one of the needs. And Judaism understands that that's a real need and needs to be respected. Okay, so there's also Ve'onata, which is the relationship. And this is so important. It literally refers to the system that Judaism has where, you know, we have a mikvah and there's family purity. There's a time where we distance physically from each other, both because it's not the time for her anyway. And besides, it's important for the sake of the renewal and the refreshing of the relationship. But what's really, really powerful is that Onah, the mitzvah of Onah is something that it, no matter what, 
A man is required to give special time for them. And ona means the time when uh, you are together physically. And there is, this is so important because as life goes on, at least when somebody gets into a relationship, so there's excitement at the beginning. You know, wow, this is so cool. We are excited about each other. But as time goes on, there's what we call familiarity. You get familiar with each other. And you live amongst each other. And slowly but surely, you get married more and more to your job. I'm not saying this from my own experience only. I'm saying this from almost every single person out there. At least me, I have Judaism, which keeps the power of what I'm talking about right now. But almost every single person that I speak to out there says the same thing. After time, you get more and more into your business, your job, and your job grows. Either it grows or it falls. Generally, I'll tell you how business works. Either it's going up or it's going down. It barely stays the same. Wherever career you're in, it's either going up or it's going down. It's never staying the same. Because at some point, there's inflation and you need to make more money and there's need to make more. Money is always trying to grow. And what happens is you get married to your job instead of being married to your spouse. Who wants that? You want a family at some point. You want to look back. Nobody wants to look back and say, I lived my life married to my job. Here lies a person that was a dentist that filled this and this amount of cavities. That's not what I want to be written, want to have written on my tomb. Can't be married to our job. And the way to... Enhance a relationship in a way that I'm married to my marriage and not to my career. One of them is this. Especially onata, that a person, no matter what, makes a commitment to their marriage in terms of giving their spouse the time that's necessary. So those are the three things that the Torah commands him to commit to in terms of making a relationship and a marriage work. And until today, that's how marriage works. We write a ketuvah. There's a document. And the document, he gives over and he commits on that document to these three things. She'el, food. Kesut is clothing. And it doesn't mean just clothing. It means shelter and all basic necessities. And ona is this way, once there's that commitment, There's no, oh, you should be, why are you spending that money? This is money I earned. Why? There's nothing to discuss. This is what the Torah says. This is what we committed to in the Jewish wedding on the Ketuvah. And that's how it's going to be. So back to the big question, because we're finishing now. The big question. We've just spoken about some of the mitzvot that's in this week's Torah portion. But the big, big question is, wouldn't you say that, right back to the beginning, my original question, the Jewish people get the Torah. They see a massive revelation. God speaks to them, right? Okay, Rabbi, I don't... Listen, whether you right now believe in the story of the Torah from Sinai or not, it's a different discussion. I need to give you a whole class on that. It's amazing stuff. But the understand the story here. The Jewish people had a massive revelation. Millions of people saw God. They all came prophets. Massive revelation. Ten commandments. Why on earth 
Is the Torah now teaching me how to treat a slave, how to treat a convert, how to treat a widow, how to treat, how to behave in a relationship, how to not lie, how to work in a court, all the laws between one man and another human being. I would have thought that the Torah should teach me all the laws between me and God. Because now I'm on a high. I saw Hashem. I saw like, wow, I should be learning Kabbalah and like all the mysticism, meditations. Let's get in there. You know, that's what it should be doing. But that's not what happens. I start learning all the laws between man and God. Why? And the answer is, because when somebody's on a high spiritually, then the most likely place he's going to fall is between other human beings. You know why? Because when you're on a spiritual high, you say to yourself, what is it, this physical world worth it anyway for? Right? Physicality, it's all a waste. What is it anyway? Physical is all a lie. We eat, then we get hungry again. Then we eat, we get hungry again. We're never satisfied. Nothing works in this physical world. If you even look, the more that science progresses, the more that we see that physical is only imagination. It's not real. It's all in the mind. Most of your experiences is in the mind, almost all of it. Even vision is, is not really a vision. Light rays. And it's the way that the, the mind sees it. It's fascinating. Everything's in the mind. Taste, physical, even physical things. When you look at a physical thing and you see it, what is it? It's composed of atoms, millions of atoms, hundreds of atoms. What is in the atom? Energy, electrons moving, crazy movement. And that's what forms the physical reality. So if you see, you see this phone, what is it? It's billions of atoms moving around, numbers that we can't even imagine moving around, causing this to exist. Electrons is movement. And that's what makes this. This is that's physical. If you take a fan and you turn it off, it has three blades, let's say. You put it on its full speed, it looks like one plate. Right? When you take a fan, it's off three separate blades. Put it on its full speed, it looks like one plate. That's how the physical world is. All of physicality is moving so fast that it comes a reality. But if you take physical reality and stop its movement, what do you really have? Not much. You take the whole physical world and you put its real matter into space. It, take all of its real matter. Most of it is just nothing. You know that, right? Most of physicality is nothing. 99.99999% of anything in front of you is really air, nothingness. It's formed from moving at electrons moving so fast that it causes the reality to be seen the way we see it. So when you think the more scientifically we're progressing, the more we realize how physicality is just nothing. It's all an imagination. So a person that commits to a spiritual world might say, Wow, I'm so connected to Hashem. I'm, you know, I'm so into my mitzvot. I'm so good with my spirituality, meditations, prayer, whatever it is. Now I, I'm, I'm going to feel like I can neglect other human beings. But that's not correct. 
if somebody was to ask me, somebody was to ask me, what's a righteous person? The Talmud says, Kol lo I forgot exactly the language. It's the beginning of chapter 2 of Pekevot. It says something which is beautiful to God and to mankind. That's, that's beautiful. But if somebody's, imagine, imagine. Who's a righteous person? He's all day long busy praying to go, good with God. He keep, does Shabbat, does the, everything Jewish, very into his Judaism. But when it comes to his own family, his own kids, terrible person has no connection, doesn't speak to them correctly, talks to them in a very derogatory way, would you consider that person righteous? Would you consider that person special? A special person is loved by humans, but also loved by God. That's called a person that's special. Not that he's loved just because he does everything they want him to do. But he's pleasant. A person that runs to synagogue to be on time, that's fine. But driving at 70 miles an hour on a 30-mile zone to be on time for synagogue, something's wrong here. Does that make sense? How can you claim to be a spiritual person but also damaging to society? It doesn't work. It's a very dangerous reality. Many times people ask me, how can it be? I've seen a rabbi and he's also, but he's also, I've seen this Jewish religious looking person, but he's also you know, doing something which is not. The answer is because a lot of times the challenge that comes to him is that he's grown so much with his connection to God. He's able easily to forget the physical world and neglect it. And that's a problem. That's why when the Jewish people got the Torah, immediately the first thing they're learning is how to treat other human beings. Because you might say, oh, they're on such a high, they're going to be treating other human beings not fairly. And the Torah gives an emphasis on how we treat other human beings as well so that you could be the perfect, complete human being. Judaism wants you to be good between you and God. And between you and mankind. If you're good just with mankind, but not with God, it's also not good. Do you know why? Because then mankind in your eyes has no meaning anyway. Mankind is evil for whatever reason. Mankind doesn't have a right. It's bad. It's evil. You don't treat a human being like the creation of God. Every human being is created in the formation of God. A person that's God-fearing doesn't just see a child. Doesn't just see his child. He sees the child of Hashem. Something that's infinite. A soul. That's a whole new level. You need to have both. Both being tremendously aware of your surroundings, but also very deeply connected to God. Okay, so these are some of the lessons that we learn in today in the, in the Torah. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'll finish off with this. It's interesting how a lot of times we can be kind to those that are around us because it looks good on us, but very unkind to those that are close to us, to our own 
family members, spouse, or those that are closest to us, those that have done good to us. And it makes no sense. And the reason for it being is because the people in the street, as much as they're not close to you, if as soon as they want, they can just walk away. People in the street, they're not committed to you in any way. Since they're not committed, you have to behave. Otherwise, they'll just run away from you. You want to be accepted. There's an, a parable that's given of a man that was very kind, always giving charity to everybody, caring about people, loving people, giving money, very kind person. Suddenly, on the other side of the street, he sees an old lady, not an old lady, he sees a lady who's carrying a lot of heavy load. It's raining, she's covered, and she's carrying a heavy load, bags and stuff. So he runs over to her, he says, "What? can I help you, can I help you? He gets to her, and who does he see it, it really is? It's his wife. He sees his wife, he says, oh, go, I'll, I'll be home in a few minutes, I'll be home in a few minutes. I'm very kind to everybody else. But when my own close mipsalchal titalem, or rabbi say, don't turn your eye away from your own flesh. Kindness starts from within. Same idea as what I'm saying. You can't be a person that's godly and also a person that's not uh, friendly to other human beings. Part of our connection to Hashem is to be strong with other humans, to talk in a way. That is godly. Talk in a way that's respectful. Even if they are wrong. Not to curse. To not use that kind of language. Because that's not a godly language. I'll never forget. And this happened to me as well. Where somebody throws a curse word. Sees I'm around. And they say, oh sorry Rabbi. I'm sorry Rabbi. Why are you saying sorry to me? Why are you saying sorry to me? Did I say anything? I didn't say anything. But for some reason, you threw a curse word next to me. Sorry, Rabbi. I didn't say anything. I was shocked. The curse word comes. Sorry, Rabbi. Why? Because you know that I hold myself to a certain standard. Because it's not only about other human beings. It's also about how I hold of myself. I'm a creation of Hashem. I don't lower myself to that kind of language. So a way to be strong, a way to be righteous, is the language of, of the Pukei Avot. It says, Rebbe said, what is the right way that a person should go in? Anything that is glory, glamorous for those that do it, for, for the one that he does it for, which is God, and it's glorified by other human beings, right? It's beautiful to others and it's beautiful to God. If that's the case, then you know that you are in the right path. But if it's bad for God and it's good for humans, you're in the wrong path. You're just a slave to other humans. You're doing it for them so that they can like, like you. Deep down, you don't feel like this is right. But you're following the path because that's what everyone else is doing. Not, not good. The righteous one is somebody who's able to be glamorous to God and to himself as well. And that is, in general, the idea of Parshat Mishpatim, the laws of how to behave, interpersonal relationships, 
The way to strengthen your interpersonal relationship is between you and God and with other human beings as well at the same time. 